Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today we are joined by a special guest, Kyle Renato. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I always tell people that I'm the the other Kyle the other of Georgia Kyle. politics. So, I, <laughs> so I'm honored that we can be together today. Kyle and Kyle talking about uh, Georgia politics. Well, Kyle is joining us today because he uh, recently announced that he is a candidate for state house. He is running in House District 35, and he is challenging Ed Setzler. Uh, and Ed Setzler is a representative that you might have heard about on the show or in any anything else about Georgia politics recently, because he is the primary sponsor of the heartbeat abortion ban bill um, that is currently making its way through the legislature. And on the day that we're recording, it is awaiting a final vote in the House of Representatives. And then uh, most likely it will end up going to Governor Kemp's desk. So Kyle, let's start there before we uh, dive into your candidacy. Um, so you announced your candidacy shortly after the House passed this bill. Um, and this is a bill uh, that is championed by your opponent. Um, so can you just give us your view of this bill that would ban abortion at six weeks? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, first of all, thank you for having me on, Kyle. I think that the work that you do is important. Um, I'm somebody who believes that more people should be engaged in the political process and pay attention and be informed about what our government is doing for us. And you guys make that possible for a lot of people. So genuinely, thank you for what you do. And honestly, I, I regret that we have to start with, with this bill because we live in 2019. This is the 21st century, and we shouldn't be talking about a policy that looks to take us backwards in the state of Georgia. You know, in the 21st century, we should agree that women have the ability to make their own personal decisions about their health care. And this bill, for whatever reason, decides that that should instead be in the hands of the government. So it's bad policy, first of all, this bill. It's unnecessary for the state of Georgia. It's medically inaccurate. And to be quite honest with you, it can be a death sentence for women across the state who, if not presented with the opportunity to have um, you know, abortion care and health care to make their own decisions about their body, might go about it in a way that would be incredibly unsafe for people across the state. So study after study has shown that safe abortion is a necessary part of women's health care. You and me and all the other gentlemen in the state need to recognize that we can't, we can't just listen to women do this. We have to be active allies um, in this fight. And so absolutely, you know, what I've been doing these past few weeks, I've called my representatives, I've called my senators, I've written to, to the governor, you know, getting involved. I've encouraged everybody else to do the same thing, because at the end of the day, we shouldn't let legislation like this go unanswered. We got to act up uh, and act out and, 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 you know, raise our voices to make sure that legislation like this has no place in Georgia, because we got to be looking towards the future, not looking towards the past. And before this interview, you and I were emailing back and forth about some of the speeches given by women representatives and senators in the wells of both the House and the Senate. Um, let's listen to a few clips of those speeches. First, let's listen to State Senator Jen Jordan. My husband and I were talking about this bill the other night, and he told me that he didn't want me to share anything personal because no one was entitled to that information. And I have always fiercely guarded my privacy. 
But let me be clear, the deepest, darkest times of my life have occurred in the presence of and with my physician. You see, I've been pregnant 10 times. I have seen what many of you in here have called a heartbeat 10 times, but I have only given birth twice. I have lost seven pregnancies in varying points of time before 20 weeks and one after five months. Her name was Juliet. I have laid on the cold examination table while a doctor desperately looked for a heartbeat. I have been escorted out the back door of my physician's office so as not to upset the other pregnant women in the waiting area, my grief on full display and uncontainable. I have been on my knees time after time in prayer to my God about my losses. I have loved each and every single one of those potential lives, and my husband and I have grieved each passing. But no matter my faith, my beliefs, my losses, I have never, ever strayed from the basic principle that each woman, each woman must be able to make her decisions in consultation with her God and her family. It is not for the government or the men of this chamber to insert itself in the most personal, private, and wrenching decisions that make every single day. And that's not some smiley, happy statement that's been focused, grouped. That is the reality of our lives. And next here, State Representative Renita Shannon. So let's get down to the root of what anti-abortion bills are about. And that is that government, which is still mostly male, does not trust women to make decisions about their own bodies. The women of Georgia are fully capable of making their own decisions, and we do not need your condescending bills that challenge our bodily autonomy. I had an abortion almost 20 years ago when I was a senior at the University of Florida. Now my pregnancy was not the result of rape or incest, but abortion was the right decision for me. I do not regret my decision. I didn't regret it at the time. And almost 20 years later today, I do not regret my decision. And I am not scarred. I still do not regret my decision. It is time for government to simply do one thing, trust women. Um, so what did you make of uh, the speeches given by um, so many of the wonderful women in the Democratic caucus in both the House and the Senate on this bill? Um, look, it's instructive for me. If When you, you listen to the stories they tell, um, you know, the, the personal relationship they have to this issue, to me, it's instructive in that it shows us why it's not just important um, that we have Democrats in office, it's not just important that we have progressives in office, that it is vitally important to the safety and security and health and the future of our state that we have women in office. Because I've been so impressed these last few weeks listening to the, to the elegance and the grace and the persuasion of all of these legislators who are incredibly powerful human beings. I've met most of them. I think they're incredible human beings. And, and for me, even as um, you know, a, a guy in this state, I am personally grateful that they are there fighting the fight on the behalf of you know, my friends, my families, and my communities. It's a shame. It's really a shame that the Republicans hear all their speeches, hear what they have to say about this legislation, and ignore them. You know, they, they, they listen to everything that they said, and essentially what Republicans in office are saying is, is we don't care. And, you know, I, 
I personally believe that we deserve better than that. You know, in the state of Georgia, we deserve better than folks who are going to propose legislation that personally harms the the, the well-being of 50 percent of the people in our state. Um, so I'm super grateful that those legislators are there and raising their voices. Uh, and I'm looking forward, hopefully, to working with them for many, many years to come and see them to make a great positive difference in our state. So, yeah, you'd like to have a hand in making our state a better place um, by running for state house. And this isn't your first shot at elected office, but you would enter the 2020 elections as one of the youngest candidates for state office. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your background and what has led you to run for state house? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first of all, I'm from Ackworth. Uh, I went to high school here at uh, North Cobb High School. Um, my mother graduated from North Cobb High School 30 years before I did. We've been here quite a long time. And um, it's fair to say that we've seen this area grow and change quite a bit. But at the same time that we've seen so many changes and seen so many new people uh, move into our area and the incredible growth of our community, we haven't seen our representation change. And so the reason that I first decided that I wanted to run is because I believe that the representation that we had um, in all levels of our, of our government um, in Ackworth just, just weren't representing my family. They weren't representing, you know, my family's values and my community, and they weren't doing the best they can, in my estimation, to really make sure that the future of my community um, is strong, secure, and prosperous for the next 50 to 100 years. That's what's important to me. So so that's why I uh, you know, initially decided um, to run last year. I was the youngest candidate in the state last year. But what I found uh, running for office as the youngest candidate in the state is that you know, age is, is just a number. The important thing about my candidacy, I found, in connecting with so many other young candidates um, across the state and legislatures who are uh, in their 20s and 30s is that, you know, we bring a very important perspective because, you know, when, when, when I think about policy here in Georgia, I'm not just thinking about the next five to 10 years. I'm thinking about, okay, what is the Georgia that my children and my grandchildren are going to inhabit? It's very personal for me because I'm going to be here. You know, my family's going to be here the next 100 years. So the decisions that we make right now as to how this community in Ackworth, Kennesaw is going to grow are incredibly important to me and my family, not just today, but for decades to come. And when I see the policies that are put forth by our current politicians, when I see, you know, the distracting, I feel, culture war legislation that they pass, instead of passing, um, you know, bills and looking for solutions that can really benefit my community, I decided, look, we, we deserve representation who's going to go in there, solve problems, and really try to make our community, um, you know, a more welcoming and kind place than we already are. So you, I, I'm curious, uh, because you and I are in similar situations on, on this point. You went to Georgetown University, right? I did. Um, so that's Jesuit school. That's in DC. I went to American University for grad school in DC. Um, and I graduated in 2015. And I've always been like thinking about, you know, when am I going to come back to Georgia? How am I going to do that? Uh, but I'm still here, uh, just doing a podcast from here. You're back in Ackworth. Uh, you're getting involved in your community running for state house. What brought you back uh, to your hometown? Yeah, it's it's really simple. It's not a complicated answer. It was I got a job here and my family's here. You know, it was really never a question of should I go anywhere else? You know, I've got a lot of friends. I'm sure you've got a lot of friends and everybody involved in the state has, has friends. You graduate college and they get jobs all over the country. And it, it's been so cool for me to watch so many of those folks do great things in the corporate world um, or as teachers or doing volunteer work, you know, all over the country. 
Um, but for me, you know, the, the most important thing for me was that my family was here and that I love this community. So I, I came back down here. I started teaching. Uh, you know, I'm a music teacher. I'm a percussionist. And so that was an incredible opportunity for me. Um, I knew I wanted to do law school in the next few years. Um, but I decided, look, for this kind of next period of my life, what I would really like is to make sure that I get to spend time with my cousins. I get to spend time with my grandparents. You know, my whole mom's side of the family lives here. So uh, it's been it's been absolutely amazing. You know, after spending three years uh, up in D.C. to be able to, like, go to my cousin's orchestra concerts and to be able to babysit, you know, my seven year old cousin and to be able to go to my grandparents' birthday parties. I mean, that that's what's important to me. Um, so there, it was never a question of, you know, where I was going to move. I, I knew I was going to come back um, here to Ackworth. And um, I live 10 minutes from my parents now which I don't know if they like that or hate that sometimes because <laughs> I see them I see them more often than my other two brothers do. My, my younger brother goes to Georgia Tech and my older brother um, lives down in Decatur. And so I'm the one who's closest to him. So I think they're getting sick of seeing me all the time. But um, to me, it, it's an absolute joy. I love where I live. Um, I love the city of Ackworth. All of my friends make fun of me because I'm constantly telling them uh, you know, how amazing it is. Our, you know, we've got lakes, we've got things to do, we've got great parks, we've got great restaurants, and most importantly, the people. So that's what brought me back here. So what do you bring to state politics as a candidate in your 20s? And what advice would you have for other young people who may be interested in running for an office like this? Right. So there's a couple of different answers to that question. Um, you know, I, what I bring personally um, to to this race just as a candidate apart from my age is, you know, quite frankly, my experience. I know it sounds silly um, as probably a pretty young guy getting involved in politics, but if you ask anybody who's known me all throughout my life, you know, I've never been um, shy about getting down in the dirt and getting work done um, to make whatever I'm involved in better. You know, I was a leader um, in the high school marching band. I was a leader at Georgetown in the, in the uh, Catholic Church and with service work. Um, you know, everything for me boils down to one question. And it's that question that Dr. King asks, which is life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? And every day I wake up and I think about, okay, what can we do? Um, so, you know, I've done that throughout my whole life. Uh, I've been involved in, in, uh, local politics here through the city and the board of aldermen and through all of those experiences, it's shown me that the most important thing in public service isn't about who you are. It isn't about, you know, what have you done in the past? The question is, what can you do for this community now? And all that takes is hard fought ideals. It takes um, the conviction and knowing, you know, what can make your community a better place. So that that's, that's what I bring is I bring this, uh, bring, bring a new perspective to this community and to say, Hey, look, these are the solutions we need. We need a better transit policy. We need to not be legislating on women's bodies. You know, we need a better environmental policy for the state. We need to fight for actual family values, um, which means protecting our LGBT um, brothers and sisters. It means making sure that, um, you know, everybody has the ability to thrive and get economic opportunity in this state. So that's what I bring personally is just about who I am, the experience I bring and the policies that are really going to make a difference for our state. Now, Specifically about the age, you know, uh, the, what I think is incredibly inspiring for me is one year ago, yesterday, you know, we're recording on the 25th, yesterday was the 24th, which is the one year anniversary of the March for Our Lives, which was organized by students younger than you and me, who had their, saw their high school shot to pieces by a gunman with a gun that was made 
for the United States military to use in war zones and how that got into the hands of just an everyday American citizen who, by the way, clearly had a history of, of um, mental issues that should not have gotten access to a weapon in the first place. But these people, these, these kids in Parkland took that trauma and turned it into action. And that's what I think our generation has to offer. And that's why I'm super proud to be one of the younger candidates in the state, because our generation has decided that we're not just going to let the older generation continue to call the shots. We're not just going to let all the people who've been in politics for so long continue to pass the same policies and continue to only find a modicum of co- of progress every few years. That's what that's what we bring. And it's important, I think, that more young people get uh, involved in politics, not just as a candidate, but as volunteers, looking at your municipal politics, going to city board meetings, um, making sure you're registered to vote, making sure all your friends are informed as well. That's 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 incredibly important to me. Is that we're energizing this this young um, generation, uh, not just as candidates but as voters as well. Um, so let's dive in on some of those uh, policies and and the things that you would like to see done if you were to become a state representative. Let's start with education, and we'll start with something specific, and then um, back out into some generalities about what your vision for education is in this state. Um, but but something specific, the, the state Senate recently resurrected a bill that would create a voucher program for public school students to take the money that the state spends on their education, take that money in the form of a voucher, and use that money to pay for private school tuition or other approved education expenses. This discussion about school voucher programs has been a part of the legislative conversation on education pretty consistently for the last five or so years. So what is your view of the concept of a state voucher program? Yeah. So um, to me, to be honest with you, I find this whole debate that we have um, around school choice to be kind of frustrating to me because um, it seems to me that one side says we got to have all this choice. We just got to have all this you know, private funding and everybody's got to go to schools. And it seems like the other side is just saying, no, 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 we only have to have you know, a public option. We've only got to do this. That's the only way to ensure that kids have access to education. And and I don't understand why we can't have both. The issue, though, is with the private the school voucher system that, quite frankly, the, the folks in office have been trying to push your right for years and years and years, and especially with this proposal that they proposed this session, is that it's not, it, it's, it's taking money from the public school system and giving it to the private school system. When we already know that students in Georgia's public school system aren't getting the resources we need. So how are we supposed to say that the right solution to that is to further draw more resources from our struggling public school system to fund these private schools? Look, I'm all for school choice. I really am. I think that everybody ha- should have access to the highest education and the, you know the best teachers, the best technology, the highest standards that we can possibly get. And I think the way that we get there is by better funding our public schools. Why is that? Because if you go anywhere across the state, education needs to be that common denominator to allowing economic opportunity for all people. The best way to do that is through public education. If some folks want to go to a private school system, God bless them. They should. You know that We should make, um, make sure that that option is available. But I don't feel comfortable taking that money away from our hardworking public school teachers who are already underpaid. I don't feel comfortable taking that money from students in South Georgia or from my community here in Ackworth who are going to our great public schools. 
I don't want to take resources from them to fund a, you know, a private institution that's not accountable to the people as well. So generally, you, you talked about better funding for public schools, but are, are there other policies in education that you would like to see the legislature pursue or, or, or other policies that you might champion if you were to enter the state house? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, it's a good thing that QBE was funded at the end of last year for the first time in you know years and years and years. That shouldn't be an outlier, right? Because that's the standard that we've set for ourselves that that's where education um, investments should be. I, I support the governor, you know, raising teacher salaries. I think that's an important part. And I saw Senator uh, Harris was here in Georgia yesterday saying the same thing. I believe our teachers should be paid the same that we would pay, you know, gosh, an athlete or a scientist or an astronaut. I mean, our teachers are out there doing God's work. And so I think it's important that we make sure that we support them. Um, but the biggest thing for me is that, especially in our public schools, that we're ensuring that all students at a public school across the state of Georgia has equal opportunity and equal resources. But I think if you go across my county right now and you look at some of the the, the, the public schools in my area, and then you go to some of the, the public schools in maybe another corner of the county, and you look at the resources that are that are available to students in both of those schools, you'd be hard-pressed to believe that kids have equal access to education at those public schools. And, you know, there's a whole host of reasons about that, which are, you know, generally about the specifics of, you know, the funding for those public schools and the property values and things like that. But but at a basic level, what we need to see is that, um, you know, no matter what public school you go to, you're getting the same funding and the same resources um, a, a, across a geographic area. That's something that I definitely want to work on. So let's move to healthcare. The the biggest legislative effort on healthcare this session has been a bill that would grant the governor the authority to negotiate healthcare waivers with the federal government. This bill is a step short of the outright Medicaid expansion that Democrats have consistently called for, but it does go further than former Governor Nathan Deal's efforts on healthcare. Um, so if you were to serve in the legislature, what healthcare policies would you like to see the House pursue? Yeah, and so the Medicaid um, question is one of the one of the, the I don't want to say the simplest, but it, it should be an easy answer, right? I mean, it's 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 obviously um, the most effective way we can increase access and affordability of healthcare across our state. Um, so it, it should be a no brainer that this is money that the federal government offered to ensure that people across the state of Georgia have access to healthcare. So that's number one. And that's something that, by the way, the legislature can do on day one, right? You know, we can approve that. We can send that message to the governor that that's important to us and to the people of our state. And to be honest with you, to me, it seems like malpractice on the part of our government to not be doing, um, to, to be working towards that solution to increase access to healthcare across the state. Now, other things that we can do, look, I was just at the Capitol a few weeks ago talking about the what's called telemedicine, which I think is the the start, the start of the future um, for healthcare in Georgia, which says that, you know, no matter where you are in Georgia, whether you're in my community in Ackworth or if you're in the center of downtown Atlanta, you should have the access to the same high quality doctors no matter what hospital you go to. I think that's a great solution. And there's all sorts of other things that we can do to lower costs and to increase care. Now, a lot of it comes from the federal government, too. Let's not, you know, kid ourselves about that. But that's where a lot of this, these policies need to come from. But in general, we have solutions right now um, to make healthcare more accessible and more affordable to the people of Georgia. And, um, you know, I, far be it for me to ascribe, um, 
you know, a reason for why these policies haven't been passed. But I do know that we deserve somebody in office who's going to fight for those policies for everybody in the city of Ackworth, everybody in the state of Georgia. Um, so another big issue sort of in the bucket of big issues that the state consistently faces is what to do about transportation around the Atlanta region. Um, Gwinnett County recently rejected a proposal for the county to join MARTA and bring expanded bus and rail transit to their county. And regional planning advocates had hoped that a victory in Gwinnett in that referendum last week would have spurred some interest in transit expansion in other metro areas, particularly in Cobb County and particularly the part of the the metro region that you're running to represent. Um, So do you think that Cobb County should consider joining MARTA? And what other solutions do you support for increasing mobility up the I-75 corridor? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I I, I do want to say that, look, Cobb County is not Gwinnett. (laughs) You know, I, I feel like linking these two things is a fool's errand that all right, yeah, Gwinnett County did have that vote, but I don't live in Gwinnett County. The people of my community don't live in Gwinnett County. We have some very different um, problems that we need solved. So um, something that I've said for years and years and years um, is that every great metro area in the country invests in some sort of mass transit policy. And why is that? Because they know that it's good for growth. They know that it's good for jobs. And we, in the 1970s, the metro Atlanta area, we we started that, right? We accepted some, some federal funding to develop MARTA in the first place. In fact, interestingly enough, it was the same federal grant that um, was given to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area to start um, their metro system there. MARTA and the metro started at the same time. And over the ensuing you know, four or five decades, the Washington, D.C. area and cities across the country took that first grant and they kept investing. They kept saying, OK, we're going to invest in the transportation and mobility su- um, success of our community because we know it's so important to the future of our state. But for a lot of reasons, and you can psychoanalyze and do all the research that you want into the history of it, we in Georgia simply didn't make those same investments. So I think a lot of the bind that we find ourselves in in Georgia today, um, as a, you know, as it re- um, involves transit policy, is simply the result of not making those tough decisions 30 years ago. And now those failures have kind of caught up to us and we're just trying to play catch up. In Ackworth, what we need is a transportation system that can Heck, get us down to the city of Atlanta for jobs or for concerts or for games or shows and stuff like that. All the reasons that you go down to the city of Atlanta and get you back. We want to make sure that it's safe. We want to make sure that it's accessible. We want to make sure it's affordable. And, you know, right now we've we've started to do that. We have a, a bus that goes down to the city for commuters in the morning and that'll take you back at night. But it only runs two or three times a day. And so I know as somebody who lives here, who lives in this community, I know that would be something that would be incredibly helpful um, to people across this community, is to make sure that we have you know, access to a reliable transportation network that can get us where we need to go and get us back home. Look, we're not looking for the Disneyland Metro Rail system. You know, I'm not expecting to get on a train outside of my front door, have it take me to Six Flags and then Publix and come back home. But what I do ask for is that we have a transportation system that lessens traffic that makes it more affordable for me to to get to my commute and to make sure um, that we're not just having constant gridlock on Interstate 75. Um, I think bus rapid transit is a great solution. Um, I think these, um, you know, this express lane that we just started is a great first step to lessening the traffic in our area. But I think we do in these next, you know, hopefully five to 10 years, really make a significant investment in more mass transit policy because we know 
that that's the best way to increase jobs in our community. We know that's the best way um, to make our community an attractive place to, um, to work, live, and to do business. And we know that it's the best way for us um, to, to move forward as a community. So you ran last time on supporting term limits for elected officials, and you're actually one of the rare Democrats that I've come across that supports term limits, um, possibly the most prominent term limit proposal out there right now in the Georgia legislature is one that's consistently filed by Michael Caldwell. He's a Republican from Woodstock. Um, he's in a district that neighbors yours. What is the benefit of term limits in your view? Yeah, so... Um... For me, the benefit of term limits is that it rewards people for solving problems rather than just running for elective office. I think we shouldn't be focusing on politics as some sort of career that somebody gets in a seat and holds it for 30, 40 years and then goes home to a claim. No. Politics is a public service. We should treat um, you know, our representatives as community members who are going there to solve our problems and then to come home. That was the initial idea. Of Congress. That was the initial idea that the founding fathers had to our country was that, look, you're going to be a member of your community. You're going to have a great job, great career. And then, you know, every so often you might raise your hand to serve your community and to, be, you know, offer policies that are going to benefit you and your state. So the real um, benefit of, of term limits is that it limits those career politicians. Look, the folks we have in office today and my current representative has been in office for 15 years. And I kind of feel like 15 years is pretty long enough to get done what you were hoping to get done. And by the way, if 15 years wasn't enough, don't we need somebody who's more effective in that position? So, you know, I'm old school. I believe that politics is a public service. I believe politics should not be something that a career politician does. Um, And that's somewhere that I absolutely can find common ground with my Republican friends on. You know, we all agree um, that you know, career politicians and that constant the constant search for re-election is bad for democracy, and we should really limit the amount um, that folks like us can be in office and can hold power. So, look, I'm offering my voice, I'm offering my perspective, I'm offering my con- experience um, in my community to fight for solutions that are going to benefit all of us now and to solve the problems that we see in these next few decades. And I think that you know, with term limits, you can you can get more people like that, right? You can you can get that fresh blood, fresh perspective, and a clean slate for our offices of government. So can I put you on the hot seat a little bit here? For sure. Um, so my view is actually basically the complete opposite. I oppose term limits. I um, think that we don't have a professional enough legislature. And so I support increasing the pay of legislators so that every legislator could make a middle income salary and that uh, the legislature then should be a full-time primary responsibility of lawmakers. Um, and, and I support more funding for staff in the legislature uh, along the same lines that I don't think that there's enough professional staff and enough resources. Basically, I would like the legislature to be a full-time job that's well-resourced and that somebody could do for a very long time. And the reason that I feel that way is because I think term limits sort of play into this idea um, or it there, I think they're too critical of like career politicians and the idea that somebody could hone being a legislator as a craft. And I think that if you had term limits, you would end up with a system where lobbyists and policy experts and the people who are not elected carry most of the expertise and sort of you have 
people with less experience who cycle in and out and and don't come to the job with the same level of expertise as somebody who might have done it for a long time. What do you make of just that argument that is opposed to to your idea here? Yeah, and I, I hear those arguments. I get it. There's a lot there. So let me address it, it, it one by one. You said that you, you, you'd you like the, the legislature to be, you know, paid a full-time salary, treat it more as, as, a, as a professional um, position. And I couldn't agree more. You know, like, I think that if we elect these people to public office, um, that they should be able to focus 100% of their time on making the community a better place. Um, but I would disagree with you in that I, I don't think no matter how well-intentioned you are, I don't think that serving in one position for 30 or 40 years is necessarily in the benefit of your community. Look, if we had said that 40 years ago, we'd still have, you know, avowed segregationists in office. And our our rationale would be that, well, they've been in office for so long. And so, you know, they know what they're doing. So we should have them there. So, so, so that's number one. Now, you also said that you think, you know, it would make lobbyists more powerful. Well, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Look, if we're going to restore a democracy, we need to have a democratic house of representatives, right? We need to have just everyday people, teachers, moms, people who, you know, work the minimum wage jobs. We need day laborers. We need immigrants in these offices. We need fathers and sons and volleyball players. You know, we need all types of people. We can't just have the same folks offering the same perspective year after year after year. That's why to me, like it's, it's vitally important that we get new blood in these positions. Every opportunity we get that we're cycling in new voices, because no matter how well-intentioned you are, you know, you and I, we have our perspective, but, but, you know, five years from now, I want somebody else's perspective in this position. You know, I want somebody else from my community to say, gosh, Kyle, we like what you did here, but actually I think we have this other idea. I've got this other thing that I'd like the state legislature to do. And I think our system should reward that, right? We should reward people for having new ideas and making sure that we have a dynamic government that's serving everybody. Now, your last point that we should have like these professional politicians who know everything, uh, you know, about the state and the issues and how to make a difference, I would just kind of change your bar. You know, I I don't think that we should only cede democracy to the few folks who are paying attention because you could argue that's what we do now. You know, when we see 50% voter turnout, we all cheer. We think that's fantastic. But if you go to some of these other democracies across the world, if you go to Australia or Argentina or, or some of these other places where they really value voter turnout, you regularly see 98%, 99%, 100% voter turnout. That should be our goal. Our goal shouldn't be just to cede, you know, governing responsibility for our democracy to a permanent government class. Our goal instead should be that everybody has an equal stake in our government. Everybody has an equal understanding of what the government does and what our state house of representatives is passing all the time. We all have equal access to information and we all exercise our voice. So instead of lowering that bar, so that 90% of us don't have to pay attention and we just let those decisions to the 10%? No, I don't want that. I want 100% of the people engaged in the politics at all time. And I want as much as that, uh, as much of that 100% involved in the policymaking process at every single opportunity available to us. That's the whole point of our democracy. That's the whole point of the democracy. 
that people are the ones making the decisions, not a governing elite. Um, so let's talk about a couple of more of these inputs that help shape the political playing field that that helps determine some of the policies that the legislature considers. Let's talk a little bit about redistricting here. So the stakes of House races like yours are really high for state Democrats. Winning a chamber would give Democrats at least some say in the redistricting process following the 2020 census. But to have a say, Democrats will have to win uphill battles in districts that are drawn to keep them out. Um, so what is your view of what Democrats should do if they win a seat at the table for redistricting in 2020? And in the long run, is drawing districts based on party control of the legislature a good thing for our state? Yeah, well, first of all, let's be real about why the stakes are so high in this election. Because we know that if Democrats don't win the state House of Representatives in 2020, that the Republicans who are in office are going to do everything in their power to continue to gerrymander these seats and to to just you know take away progressive voices um, from the policymaking process. That's what gerrymandering does. It says even though Democrats might have gotten seventy percent of the vote in Georgia, you know, in these last few years, we're only getting what forty five percent of the seats. And I mean, those numbers, I'm not sure about the exact numbers, but but that's essentially the idea that you slice and dice the districts, you slice and dice the constituencies, where you get these absolutely preposterous maps for where a district or a community community is located, and as a result of that, you silence the voices of some people who want to vote. That's why the stakes are so high, because again. It's career politicians who have nothing in mind but holding and keeping power, who are organizing this process in such a way that it shuts out the democratic process. Gerrymandering is wrong. It doesn't matter who does it. You know, it, it, it's wrong for democracy. It doesn't actually let people exercise their voice. So what should we do when Democrats win a seat at the table for redistricting? Well, we should, what we should do, what we've been saying we're going to do in North Carolina and these other states where Democrats have stepped up and said, not only are we going to be not doing, not only are we going to not gerrymander the districts, we're going to cede authority to a nonpartisan body. I think that's the answer, right? Because no, I, I, I don't think that partisan politicians should really have a role in designing our own seats because the incentive structure is absolutely designed um, for us to ignore the will of the voters. What I'm going to do, um, you know, as somebody who's representing a community who's, you know, um, been represented by a Republican for so long, is I want to get up there and fight for fair maps that are actually going to accurately reflect the vote of Georgia's people and not develop maps that are just going to serve a political party. And I think we'd be well served in the state of Georgia if everybody made that commitment. Another one of these kind of issues, uh, this bill, House Bill 316, has been at the center of debate for much of this legislative session. This is a bill that allows the state to purchase new voting machines and puts into law some changes to the administration of voting that uh, were challenged in court cases in the 2018 elections, basically some small tweaks where Democrats challenged them and then courts ordered the state to implement these policies, and then they're now being brought into law in this in this big voting bill. What do you think about this bill? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an absolute farce. You know, anybody who has been watching this bill be developed and be voted on and, and go through this whole process, I mean, it's an absolute farce. Look, any common sense person knows what are the goals of our voting system? 
You want it to be secure, right? You want to know that your vote's counted. And you want to make sure that there's no funny business going on at the other end where someone's manipulating your vote. And sadly, on all three counts in this last election managed by our current governor, we have failed, right? I mean, there's there's no trail where I can go to my government and say, was my vote counted accurately? You know, I know I voted for Stacey Abrams, and I know there's a lot of other folks who did as well, but there's no way for us to go back and verify that that vote was counted correctly. And in the years after we've seen the Supreme Court Shelby decision be overturned and allow this sort of voter suppression to go on in the communities of color and progressive communities across our state, what we really need is a voting system which is accountable, right? Accountable to the people. And the way that that Democrats think that you should do that, right, is because this is a system that's used in 80% of the states, is a paper ballot system. The reason that a paper ballot system is so important is because I can look at it, right? I mark it. I can look at it. I know that my vote was accurately tallied and I can give it to somebody. And by the way, if the vote needs to be audited, I can take back that paper ballot. I can look at it and I can say, yes, this is the vote that I made and I think it should be counted accurately. Sadly, instead, what the current government we had says right now is that what we want is the least secure voting system um, literally known in the country, a, a system which can be you know, hacked by any, you know, any computer hacker with the, you know, the, the, the codes and the passwords in, um, when there, the system was being demonstrated, um, just a few weeks ago, uh, at the legislature, it was hacked at that very moment. And for me, that doesn't make me feel very confident about the security of my vote. By the way, a paper ballot system would be much more fiscally responsible for our state. House Bill 316 um, has basically a, a, a no-bid vendor process where we're just going to go with this, this one vendor who makes this one system, which is incredibly insecure. Hundreds of millions of dollars are going to be spent on this system, which just doesn't work. I mean, it's a no-brainer for me that, that's, that any common-sense person knows that this is not the way we should be running our, our, our election system. Environmental policy doesn't get a lot of discussion in Georgia politics, it feels like. And much of the national conversation about environmental issues the last year or so has focused on the Green New Deal, which is the sweeping set of reforms meant to rebuild the nation's economy on a clean and sustainable foundation and undo or compensate for damage done to frontline communities by the fossil fuel industry. That conversation really doesn't reflect the option before Georgia lawmakers or the reality of some of the energy investments that the state of Georgia and Georgia Power ratepayers have made. I'm thinking here of things like Plant Vogel. Um, so what is your view about what state policymakers can do to combat climate change and protect the environment in our state? Yeah, I mean, the first thing we have to do is elect representatives who acknowledge that this is the crisis of our lifetime. You know, the fact that that is the bar we have to cross, that so many folks in office right now don't even acknowledge that climate change is not just going to affect our community in the future, but is affecting our community right now. I mean, this is a national emergency, and we're not doing a thing about it. If you're paying attention in Nebraska, across the Midwest right now, there are life-altering floods across a huge number of states out there. And the federal government just released a report just about a week ago that said Georgia could be next that this spring. This flood season could be the worst we've seen um, in a generation. And if that doesn't wake you up to the need for a more active policy to combat climate change, then I don't know what will. So that's number one. Democrats 
are going to address this issue because we've said it's important time and time again. As for the Green New Deal, you're right, that's that's more of a federal proposal. I don't know that I agree with everything that's in there, um, but I do know that we need to be bold about this. And I do know that the state can play a role. So we've seen states, um, I know California has increased fuel efficiency standards. That's one thing we can do to lower the carbon emissions in our state. I love the idea of you know LEED certified buildings, making sure that the energy we're using in all buildings across the state um, is at a sustainable level. There are appliances we can use to make sure that you know state buildings are offering operating off of sustainable power. All these sorts of things we could do tomorrow. And why aren't we? Because we're not acknowledging the problem. So um, I welcome everybody. If you've got ideas about how we can make our community a, a more sustainable place, send me those ideas. Like let's make that happen. But we got to first acknowledge it's a problem, and second, say we're going to take action on it, and we are. So we've run through a lot of policy issues in this conversation, but are there any other policy issues that are important to you that you want to talk about? Um, yeah, we have run through quite a bit. Um, you know, one thing that is personal to me as the descendant of an immigrant um, to the United States is the way that our state um, treats immigrants today. Um, you know, I tell people this all the time, but a few months ago I was on, a, on the phone with a friend of mine who's uh, from Georgia but spent a lot of time away from Georgia and, you know, she's applying to grad schools and she was going through the application process for, for UGA and Georgia tech and some other state of Georgia schools. And um, she called me one day while, while she was filling out an application, she said, Kyle, what, what is this deal about an application asking about my documentation status? And that's when I realized that, yeah, in the state of Georgia, not only, you know, are we not giving in-state tuition to these folks, we're actively discouraging American kids who are undocumented from applying to schools and from getting job opportunities. To me, I mean, it's just an immorality. And it's not who we are as a country. So in 21st century Georgia, what we should be fighting for is opportunities from people you know, who come from all corners of the globe and come here to be American and come here to be Georgia. Um, it's more expensive for us as a state to try to keep these folks locked out of the system than it is to welcome them into our economy into which they're already contributing. Um, so, you know, I know that's something that on day one that I definitely want to make sure we fight for, um, that we're welcoming immigrants in this community, that we're making sure that they have the opportunity to thrive in our state. And do you think that the legislature should specifically require the Board of Regents to allow undocumented students to attend all of the institutions in the state? I know, I can't remember exactly what number it is. It's like the top four institutions where your uh, immigration status can basically they you basically would not be allowed to in, attend under any circumstances. Um, do you think that that policy should be changed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's 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 the right thing to do for our country. And look, I mean, it, it shouldn't even be a question. Like, if you're an undocumented, uh, you know, kid who's been protected by by DACA, that means you're American. That means that you've pretty much known no other country, no other community in the United States of America and the state of Georgia. Who are we to say that folks like that shouldn't have the same access to education and jobs as me? You know? And so I absolutely think that's the right thing to do. Look, I know it's complicated with, with federal and state policy, but I do think that we should be doing everything possible to make sure that these folks are protected just as much Americans as I am. Um, so Luke often closes out these interviews by flipping the table and allowing candidates to ask us questions. So I'm going to take up his tradition and, and flip the table here. What question do you have for me? 
I've got a couple of questions for you. So first of all, you know, I went to a Jesuit school. Community service is important to me. You know, what's one of your favorite service organizations? How can I get involved? How can listeners get involved? Um, so one of my favorites is Habitat for Humanity. Um, I'm a little biased here because uh, a good friend of mine who is currently serving in the state legislature, he he runs a Habitat for Humanity chapter. And so throughout my time knowing him, I've been able to really see, even from like the inside, the operations side, what a big difference Habitat makes for uh, the people who are serviced by them, for the people who you know, can now put a roof over their heads and, and who throughout the process with Habitat put some of their own sweat, some of their own uh, hard work into building themselves a place to live and um, and helping with that process. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that organization. Um, as to how you can get involved, I, I know uh, if you want to get it, if you're in the Athens area and you want to get involved, talk to Spencer Fry. He's a state representative there. Um, but it, and and he's the executive director of the chapter over there. But I, I know that there's chapters of this organization all across the state and in other places around the country. And so I'd my advice uh, would be to look to your local chapter because um, when you get involved with Habitat, you're getting involved with an organization that's building houses in your community. And that's uh, a legacy of your own service and the service of the people you work with that will stand in your community for for years, for decades. And um, so I love the work that they do. I love it. Fantastic. It did, did you want, did you want to do one of the other ones or? Yes, absolutely. Well, look here, we'll do this one quickly. Who, who, who you got one in the NCAA bracket? Who you got on the men's and women's side? Uh, so Duke is my team on the men's side. Oh, for the love of God. I wanted to pick Tennessee. I thought Tennessee looked great coming down the stretch, but uh, they almost got knocked out the other day, so I guess I'm glad I didn't pick them. Um, on the women's side, I feel compelled to go with Mississippi State uh, because they ended UConn's basic, I think it was like a two-year winning streak by UConn, um, and the Mississippi State has been the national runner-up for the last two years. So. I need them to. Uh, I want to see them reach the mountaintop and actually get there this time. Uh, who right. who, who is it on your bracket? Well, look, my grandfather was a big Villanova fan. He just passed away a few weeks ago. So on the men's side, I picked I picked Villanova to be the champion. They just lost over the weekend, so I had to you know take a take a bit of time and suffer that. My bracket is totally destroyed. Uh, on the women's side, I got to go for UConn. Look, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, my parents went to the University of Hartford. We've got a good emotional connection to them, and you just can't bet against Gina Oriana. So, I got I got UConn on the women's side. I think I think you're right. It's either UConn or it's going to be Mississippi State. So, we'll yeah. see how that goes. And then, final question for you, because I don't think candidates should have a monopoly on political <laughs> ideas. I really don't. Look, this is all of our responsibility. Tell me what you see as the future of Georgia. How will your Georgia look in thirty to fifty years? Uh, well, I hope that it looks different than how I think it's going to look after having been an observer no. of Georgia politics for. No, you can't. You can't fall into that cynicism. No, 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 no. <laughs> Tell me what, what do you want to see? Like, what can we fight for? Let's well, make it happen. Well, let me let me uh, break down my cynicism, and then and then maybe you can pull me out of it. I I started watching the legislature in 2013, and consistently since then, we've. I feel like the legislature has. Uh, most often sidestepped the most important debates that the state can have. We had a big transportation debate in 2014 where we raised the gas tax for the first time in 
I don't, I don't even know how long. And that debate, which was, which the gas tax was labeled as the largest increase, the largest tax increase in Georgia history. That debate was not to fund some new mass transit system. It was not to alleviate congestion in the Atlanta area. It was to take care of a maintenance backlog. Um, on, right. on on some of these other issues, we've had our heads in the sand as it relates to healthcare and Medicaid expansion. Um, we haven't had any real major reforms to our education funding formula since the 1980s, which is the biggest mechanism that we can use to make changes. And right, we've right. talked we've talked quite a bit on this show about a rural development council led by the House Speaker David Ralston, and I've been consistently underwhelmed by the progression of that committee. It was a committee that started with some big ideas. One of the most outlandish ones was to actually pay people to move to rural Georgia. And regardless of what you think of the merits of that idea, that was the first time in a while that I had seen the legislature put out a big vision for something, something that could be considered kind of outlandish. That idea was quickly dispatched. And I haven't seen that committee come up with anything really substantive that's going to move the needle for uh, an area of our state that even Brian Kemp says you can't see the region of rural Georgia moving out of the Great Recession, that a lot of people there still feel like and are still feeling the economic pain of the recession. So over and over again, I have watched the legislature sidestep some of the biggest debates that we should be having. And I feel like most members of the legislature do not want to be having these debates. It's easier to come up with a tax credit here and a small program there. And when it comes to things like MARTA, to push off responsibility onto the counties to decide whether or not they want to be a part of this, whether or not they want to tax themselves. Um, and, And the vision that you're seeing is not one of big ideas. It's, it's one of opting out. It's Republicans asking, how can I opt out of a state that now has this emerging value of not discriminating against people based on who they love? How can I opt out of an education system that may have kids in it that I don't necessarily want my kids hanging around? Maybe the schools don't teach what I think that they should teach. How can I opt out of a transportation system unless I can vote locally to tax myself in a, in a, in a way that I, that is just not a statewide vision for transportation on all of these things, the Republican message has been, how can I opt out? And there right. isn't a competing message of big of a big vision. And so I think you have to change a lot of the players that are there to get to a place where you would have a brighter vision for the state. Right. And I'm, you know, until we see a sea change in the legislature and, and we see more courage from legislators to take on some of the biggest debates, I'm actually somewhat pessimistic about, about where things are going to go in the next, you know, say 10 or 20 years. Well, look, you're not wrong. You're not wrong to be cynical about the way things have been in the past. And, you know, something that Cory Booker says all the time is, look, if you're not angry about where politics has been the last few years, then you're not paying attention, right? But in our system, in our democracy, it's our responsibility to hold the government accountable. It's our responsibility to say, this is what I think our state should be doing. This is what my community needs. No one is going to do that for us. And so, look, Mahatma Gandhi said, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. That's my mantra. Like, we can't sit around and wait for somebody else to offer the big solutions. We can't sit around 
and wait for politicians who have been in office for 20 years to all of a sudden change their mind and propose these solutions that are really going to address the policies, the, the, the needs of the next century. And so that's why I think it's vitally important that we have new folks, a new generation of leadership coming up and saying, what is important to us? Education policy, you mentioned. Climate change is important to us. Making sure that our ballots are counted. Participation in our democracy. And ensuring that the economy is set up to benefit everybody and not just the few at the top. These are things we can do. And we got to believe that we can do them, right? Um, the only way that, we'll can be, that we can be sure these problems won't be solved is if we succumb to this cynicism and we let ourselves believe, look, it's not happened in the past. It's not going to be, it's not going to happen in the future. But every time that this country has moved forward, it's because new people raised their hand and offered leadership. Look, we shouldn't vote. We shouldn't participate in the democracy. We shouldn't run for office because we think we're perfect, but we certainly should run for office and we should vote and we should pay attention to what's going on because we believe that there's something worth fighting for. And for me, look, the 21st century is our century. This is our generation that we can go out and shape. And we got to start that now. And we can do that. If we, if we vote in new folks into office, if we keep our leaders accountable and we keep our eyes fixed on that vision of that society, of that state, and of that country that we want to see for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. We can do it. We can. We just got to believe that. All right. Well, let's end it there on that positive note uh, before I get pessimistic <laughs> again. Um, but Kyle, you are a candidate. Uh, so go ahead and plug yourself. How, if people want to get involved with your campaign or learn more about you, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Facebook. You can just look up uh, Kyle Renato, R-I-N-A-U-D-O. You can also go to the website, kylerenato.com. Um, you know, we just started this campaign a few weeks ago, so be on the lookout for a formal announcement. But I'll tell you this, this is not an insignificant task to try to win in a district like this, but it's worth it. And we need your support. We need your financial contributions and we need your volunteers. So if you know anybody around Akron, Kennesaw who wants to come knock on doors, send us our way. And uh, most importantly, stay engaged and believe that we can make a difference because this is the year to do it. All right. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining the pod. Thank you, Kyle. And I uh, look forward to talking with you more soon. All righty, guys. And we're going to leave that there for this week. Uh, you're going to hear from us in a regular episode later this week where we're going to keep everybody up to date on the latest as legislative session comes to a close. Uh, but for now, we will leave it there and we will talk to you guys later. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.